Welcome back to The Host Dispatch. In today's very special episode, we have our first interview with poet Monica Teresa Ortiz. Monica was the first recipient of the Host Publications Chapbook Prize, and though we sold out of all physical copies of her chapbook, Autobiography of a Semi-Romantic Anarchist, it is available digitally and is free to download from our website. You will have the opportunity to make a donation, which will go to the organization of Monica's Choice. Currently, all donations will go to the Lebanese Queer Fund to raise funds for young members of the queer community in Beirut that have endured major losses and injuries. We also highly encourage you to check out Monica's essay and note of gratitude, Desde Abajo, as well as the reading lists she curated for our blog, which are full of the most beautiful and revolutionary texts. All of this is available on our website, hostpublications.com. We hope you enjoy our conversation with this radical, semi-romantic anarchist. And as always, thanks for listening. I'm good. How are y'all? How's everything going? I was so sad we didn't all get to meet up, but things have just been so scary. Oh my god, we all spent time together at AWP and then like we got snatched by the universe. Like we all just <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great way to put it. We did we did. We yeah. completely did. Like we had that great trip to AWP and then it was like, okay, we're gonna be locked up in our houses for the rest of twenty twenty. Monica, you are in Lubbock? No, so I'm not in Lubbock. Uh, I'm in the town that I, I grew up in. So uh, it's a little town in Castro County, but it is in the Panhandle. So it's like North Texas. Well, people, it's weird because people say North Texas, but mm-hmm. to most people, North Texas is Dallas. Or they might say it's West Texas, but West Texas is actually like uh, Marfa and Alpine. So it's kind of a strange, like, geographical region because we're in the Panhandle, but we're still not considered, like, North Texas. Texas is so big. You can't divide it into just four quadrants. No, it's huge. That's one thing I love about Texas is that it does have so many different geographical, like, regions. Like, you have the coastal areas, you have the Piney Woods, um, you have, you know, the beauty of and space of like alpine and then further out to el paso like the guadalupe mountains and then there's you know i'm not talking shit about dallas but i think that's like the least attractive part of texas because there's really like nothing out there also midland like midland odessa which is just like oil fields um fracking but at least out here um it's really like once you hit the panhandle i think it's really beautiful because it is like the lower half of the great plains so it is really really flat and there's just like a lot of prairie and you can see for miles in any direction uh the sky is huge here because it's just like there's nothing to like interfere um so Mm -hmm. it's a lot of sky and land um and then outside of amarillo is um Palo Canyon, which is, I think, the second largest canyon in the United States behind the Grand Canyon. Oh, wow. Um, and it's incredible. It's about 45 minutes away from my hometown. Um, but that place is beautiful. It's mm-hmm. canyons and a lot of red rocks, red clay. It's it's gorgeous. Yeah, because you're up there near Oklahoma, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Oklahoma is probably about four or five hours away from, from here. Funny thing is, because I being home, like I get to like revisit things, and I was looking at photos yesterday of my uh, high school graduation, and right after I graduated, like the next day, my cousin and I drove to Oklahoma City. Just like the bombing had only been, I forget what year the bombing happened, like ninety seven, ninety eight, but uh, we drove up there to see the site. And I was just like looking back over those photos. They hadn't uh, built anything yet. It was still like you could still see the crater 
um, you could still see a lot of like mm-hmm. the debris. Uh, in the middle of all that, there was a survivor tree, which is like uh, one of the only like pieces of land that like survived the blast. It was just like strange to like revisit that kind of like uh, memory, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's crazy that that part of your life, that event in your life, your high school graduation was kind of punctuated by a bombing. Um, I feel like that really reminds me of the essay you wrote and how you have all these different phases of your life kind of mapped out by these tragedies that were taking place around you. And I think that's true for all of us, but not everyone is paying attention. And, I, you know, not to pass blame, but... I think a lot of people don't have to pay attention or are socialized not to. Mm -hmm. So when I read your essay, I realized that though we are of like slightly different generations, like just a few years, those things were happening around my life too, you know, and like all of us could, could make those connections between which of these tragic things was happening around this particular phase of my life. Yeah, honestly, I know that people talk about like Gen Z and like the place that they entered post 2000. They like Gen Z came into the world after 9-11, after Katrina, like those are the markers for them, you know, um, the war in Afghanistan, like those are for the people, you know, based in the U.S. Um, those are like the, um, the events taking place in their lifetime and had like a lot of effect on their lives in other ways. And I think my generation was like very much marked by Reagan. Um, I have a lot of files that I called the United States of Reagan because when Reagan became president, there was just so much policy, both at home and abroad, that he influenced, you know, and in ways that I think, unless you're really interested in like doing that kind of reading, you don't necessarily see, you know. But I guess like the moments that I remember is because I always wanted to be a journalist. Like when I was younger, that was something that interested me. So I was always interested in the news. So I was consuming news constantly. Um, I remember being, I think in third or fourth grade. And that was, I think it was around the year that, uh, that we entered the Gulf War, that we invaded Kuwait. And I remember it being on the news and people talking about that as like one of the first truly broadcast wars you know, where you actually saw footage. I think they had done a little bit in in Vietnam, um, but not like you didn't see the kind of extent of coverage that we saw like in the Gulf War. And I think for me, like being so young and being so like curious, it, I wanted to know where those places were at. I wanted to know where are we sending people, you know, like what is our connection to these places? Um, And so I started I think at that point, becoming more interested in learning and paying attention to like these things that seem like they're not connected and yet they are like a cult, like part of our culture of violence and from the Oklahoma city bombing to like um, the standoff between David Koresh and the the agents in uh, Waco, you know, like there's just these pockets of violence that people might say, Oh, well, they're just like, a singular event and I don't think that they are I think that it's all connected you know yeah that's the beauty of journalism too is that 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 is how we are able now to make those connections so much of where you come from and so much of your work Monica reminds me and this is a very deep cut that nobody talks about but of Vox Lux um, and how Natalie Portman's pop star character was shaped by um school shootings and her career trajectory and the shape of the world and what being a survivor of a school shooting, what her life trajectory looked like from beginning to end. And yeah, I'm just constantly thinking about how your work pulls and connects these major events and what they do to us individually and collectively. Yeah. And I think that I got a really pretty good perspective when I went to grad school and the majority of my cohort were Central Latin Americans. And I think that that's kind of, because I didn't study, I didn't study history. I studied uh, literature, but when I went to grad school, I definitely got a lesson in history from the Central Latin Americans um, because they know their history so well. 
and they um, have such a specific understanding of the relationship between the United States and their countries because it is so violent. Um, and there's like so much interference from the United States in different areas of Latin America and Central America. Um, and again, like that goes, you know, that goes back to Reagan. That goes back even further than Reagan. And this was when you were getting your MFA? Yeah, this was my MFA yeah. from um, 2003 to 2006. And then Did also because you... I was on the border too. So that was a different level. Yeah. Tell us where you were again. Uh, I did my MFA at UT El Paso. So I was living in El Paso, but I spent a lot of time in Juarez. I mean, how could you not? There's yeah. no space between them. Yeah, and this was actually before it became, I think it was under Obama that it became a requirement that you needed a passport to cross over. So for most of that time I spent there, uh, you just needed a driver's license. So yeah. you could cross over easily back and forth. Um, I didn't know that you were ever interested in journalism. Was that just like a childhood dream or idea of like what you wanted to be? Or did you ever end up studying it? I guess I never really talk about it. But um, my first job uh, in high school actually was at the county newspaper uh, for the Castro County News. And I got the job there, I think when I was like 16. And I worked there all through high school. So for three years um and the editor actually was he was great uh he was just this old like old school journalist and he had actually gone to ut austin um he had studied journalism there and he had moved back and bought the paper and so i learned a lot of and all of this is like before the internet so everything i learned was like old school um, like I learned how to use a dark room. I went out and reported on the events, took pictures. I did layout. Um, but my favorite activity was always once the paper was laid out, I would take, take it to the printer, which was in Kenyon. And that was my weekly trip. I would take it out there, drop it off. I watched the paper get printed on those big presses, which was really cool. Um, and then take it home and then drive around and drop off the papers to the stores, you know, wherever the papers were sold. I really loved being a part of that. I loved doing the news, being in the community, talking to people, covering things. But also, you know, very early on, I also learned a lot about uh, racism because my co-workers, not Mr. Nelson, um, but I had a coworker, and she was horrible. Like she was so racist and just really disliked me. Was it but, something that other people were aware of or was this kind of like privately? No, it's just like, the thing is, I think that in this part of Texas, like where I grew up, especially at that time, like people can be the nicest racist that you'll ever meet. Um, like yeah. they might wave at you, they might stop and help you, but you know, like the racism runs very deep here. My dad and my mom both, my mom is from Mexico, but she moved here when she was like seven. They both grew up here and they, my dad would talk about how they would have signs, uh, you know, no Mexicans, no blacks, uh, posted up in different parts of town. You know, my dad's like 65 now. So yeah. it's definitely like something he can remember. But yeah, so I wanted to study journalism and uh, I got into the journalism program at UT Austin, actually. And so for my first year, I took journalism classes and I really wanted to do magazine journalism because I liked long form. I really enjoy the work and like, you know, I just I like reading long stories where people where the journalist really gets to talk to the subject. So that was what I wanted to do. And then I took a, a poetry class, just, just to take it. And I just fell in love. Like I really hadn't read a lot of poetry, but I remember taking that class and I had this fantastic teacher. He was a grad student, actually. He was, he was gay. And he introduced me to Audre Lorde, Marvelous Arithmetic of Distance. Yeah. was one of the first poetry books that he handed to us and that just that book changed my life I was like I want to do this like I want to write I want to read you know this is what I'm actually like interested in doing and so I went and uh I changed my major and the school when I went to the school of communication they really could not believe that I was leaving the program to go 
be a, a literature major. We owe a huge debt of gratitude to that graduate student teacher, by the way. I wonder where he's at. I don't know what happened to him, but he was wonderful. He just had this like way of speaking that just drew you in mm-hmm. and you were just like so excited. And I still did some like, um, I worked on the undergrad literary journal at uh, UT Austin and Electa. I was the editor. Um, I also worked for the Daily Texan as a copy editor. I did that for like a year, actually. So I learned a little bit about copy editing. Um, but I just realized that I didn't have the same like interest in writing professionally or like as a career as I did is just like the study of it and to read and write yeah. poetry. But Monica, your love and interest for journalism still bleeds into your poetry. I mean, autobiography of a semi-romantic anarchist is like a poetry crónicas hybrid. You know, I I went to Mexico City in 2011, I think. Um, but I went for the first time and my friends and I took a bus, uh, one of the Max buses from Austin to Mexico City, which is like 36 hours on a bus. Oh my God. I had, um, I had these friends that had, because both of them had studied Latin American history. And so they had an incredible library of different books. And, you know, they let me borrow a few. And one of the books that I picked up was Open Veins of Latin America by Eduardo Galeano. And I read that book on the bus ride there. I took that one and then I took his other book called um, Just Say Yes. It has essays about writing in that one. So I took those two books, I read both of them, and I really just fell in love with his style, um, like his dexterity and being able to like be a historian and a journalist and a poet simultaneously, explaining yeah. these like deep, uh, long histories and just like being able to break them down, you know, to talk about imperialism mm-hmm. in a way that just really got to the heart of why things are the way that they are I think that kind of just like stuck with me and I realized like how much I had always enjoyed reading books by journalists there's another um what's her name uh Alma Guillermo Prieto I think that's her name she's also a journalist that did a lot of like really great books mostly on Mexico and on the border um, and on Central America so I just I really enjoyed that and I thought well you know, as a poet, I should be able to like read histories too and like have this knowledge. They all like come together at some point, they intersect. Yeah, I definitely feel that in your work, especially in autobiography of a semi-romantic anarchist, we definitely get those threads of the news and the political happenings, but they're sort of woven in, in, in what you call respect of like an anarchist principle um, in your essay about this chapbook. So Monica's chapbook is now available for free download on our website. Uh, It's a free download, but you have the opportunity to make a donation and all donations and proceeds for the chapbook will be offered to black trans organizations who are doing the groundwork and envisioning a safe and secure future for our most vulnerable populations, which is something that you really believe in Monica. And so do we. Yeah. um, Yeah. I think it was earlier in 2020. I think there was a lot of conversations about, about digital offering and digital copies of things and ownership Mm -hmm. and obviously like for me that doesn't make any sense you know Um, at least like for me personally and you know and I really like love working with guys and I love that y'all are so open to that idea of being able to like put that out there and offer it to people for free. One of my passions is definitely making important work presented beautifully, but also really accessible. And I mean, your book is exactly what the world needs right now. You know, the fact that we sold out a year after printing and then just having your work kind of sitting in limbo, Mm. it made total sense to just make it accessible. So I was really excited when you pitched the idea and um, we were like, we want to make sure that the instructors that are teaching your work have access to it in August. Um, but then with everything that's been going on in the world, it felt right to release it as soon as humanly possible, um, which was in, in June is when we officially made it available online for download. But um, 
I think that's one of the beautiful things about chapbooks in general, that they're easier to print, more affordable to purchase. Um, we've had some suggestions to increase the prices on the chapbooks, and the staff has all agreed that $10 is where we should keep it for the time being, at least, because we really want to make sure that our author's work really gets into the right hands um, and price is a big part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Accessibility is definitely really important. Mm -hmm. I was just going to mention that between the time when we first printed 500 copies of your chat book and the time that it sold out, so about a year's time, a lot has changed. Uh, It feels really different to me to come back to these poems. They were always hyper relevant and hyper aware of our situation in the world politically, geographically, socially. And now they almost feel prophetic. Some of these lines, I'm going to pull one, which is, I know the future, all of its limitations. That is kind of an eerie line now. Uh, And given this sort of anarchy uh, principle um, expressed in the work, and then also just in your essay writing about the work, uh, how do you feel about coming back to this little chat book now after what has transpired in the last year and now a year and a half? I think it's really interesting to me because, you know, we were just talking about, you know, all of these other like incidents and like times of violence, time Mm -hmm. markers and things. And I had picked up this book called the, uh, which was one of the books on my list, uh, The Black Swan. And in it, the author um, talks about an event that's like so rare that you just like can't, you can't predict it. You can't see it coming. Right. And it just like happens. And then you kind of, everything like changes after it and you kind of just have to deal with it. I think 9-11 is like one particular example that he uses. Um, You just like, we never saw that happening. And some people have kind of talked about uh, the coronavirus as like an example of a black swan event. But um but he uh, himself, I think, has said, like, actually, no, because he's an economist, um, but he's writing from that perspective. And he says, no, actually, like, you can see there was an established pattern before this happened. Like, this was actually very easily predicted. We knew because of, like, Ebola. We knew because of swine flu, because of all these other smaller viruses that have happened, that if there was one that just came along at the right time, because of like the circumstances of capitalism and uh, globalism, all of these kinds of other factors, it could really like blow up in the way that we've seen this virus do. Um, so when I was writing autobiography, which was, I mostly wrote it in a week. Mm-hmm. So it was a week, the last week of 2018 and the very first week of like 2019, because I wrote a lot of it right during the new year. And so I think for me, I was drawing a lot on um, patterns, you know, things that we were repeating events, even if they were different singular events, they were still repeats of other events that we had previously seen. And, you know, one of the, um, in 2018, I think was like one of those years too, where maybe there was not as many like disasters, but there was a lot of like smaller, smaller disasters that we did see, right? Like the the wildfires in California, you know, I don't know if y'all remember them, but I remember the images of like the fires in LA and how bad the smoke was that it went all the way to San Francisco and people even in San Francisco were having to wear masks. And and that had already been like a reoccurrence. Like we'd already seen wildfires in California before, but something about that particular time really stood out for me. And I think some of it was like watching people particularly like um, Gen Z react to those, these situations. Like I remember seeing images of this, um, I think she's a producer in LA and she had, she lives in LA and she had taken um, like a gas mask, you know, that has like these giant filters and things. And she was just wearing it out, but the juxtaposition of her like dressing in like couture and like, going outside wearing this like gas mask was so surreal and absurd I think that that's like one of the themes in the book is there's there is a lot of influence from like surrealism and absurdism because like 
some of these things seem so ridiculous that it's not possible that they could have been, but it is very much our reality. People said that about Trump's election in 2016. When he said he was going to run, people thought there was no way. And I remember that day. I remember telling my partner at that time, he's going to run and he's going to win. And both of us, like she's an organizer, you know, so people that I think are more connected to organizing that have been on the ground that do work in labor and in immigration, in mass incarceration, deportation. I think a lot of us saw that, you know, we saw that coming. When I was writing the book, I was drawing a lot on those experiences. You know, these are patterns. These are things that you can see coming. We just don't want to see them. Yeah. And the book is The Black Swan by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And that is on Booklist on our website, on our blog. So people should definitely check that out. Yeah, I had been wanting to read that book for years. Yeah, I think it was since like 2010 that I had heard about it and wanted to read it. Um, Mm -hmm. But I just never got around to buying it. But when I was in um, Beirut last year in May, um, I happened to be at a bookstore with some of my friends. And I was like looking for a book and I found that book. And because it was there in that in that bookshop in Beirut, I was like, I have to buy this book now. God, I love it when that happens. When you find a book that's been on your radar for a while, but totally at random. And you just know that that is like the book you are meant to read next. It's the best. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love it if you would read us a poem from Autobiography. Um, If there's one that you're feeling is particularly resonant for you right now, looking back. Yeah, it's so wild to me because I do feel a lot of these poems really just knew something that I I don't even know that I knew. Uh, You know, (laughs) in, uh, in honor of Texas and the fact that Texas does not and has not handled this virus very well because of our government, uh, I'm going to read from page 22. I don't mean to alarm you. Texas is a death world. Yes, everything is bigger in Texas, but that also means graves pile up higher than mesquite and winds of the plains hiss like gas leaks. Everyone here prays to God, but no one actually listens. Sometimes we hobble like zombies under brutal summer heat, pale faces hypnotized against neon screens. We can Google isoflavins and soy, but cannot define school-to-prison pipeline. A poet I once knew said white women march in pink hats, never considering that not all pussies are pink and not all women have pussies. Even though I miss myself before Columbine, before 9-11, I am not nostalgic. Save nostalgia for white folks, pining for a past, before we tore down bronze monuments honoring the white men that killed us. I just wanted to warn you, fire is born. Claire said it last week. Um, Texas is a death state right now. Yeah, I said that summer is our death time in Texas and ended up cutting it out of the episode. But yeah, I mean, so many of the images in this poem feel like electrically charged right now. And I feel like this came out like not long after a lot of the women's marches were taking place Mm -hmm. after Trump got elected. And I think that scene kind of taking place in the middle of this poem is also really resonant for me right now because we're seeing a different kind of march. And as with any gathering, massive gathering of people um, from all walks of life, supporting a cause, there are so many different shades of expression. And obviously, uh, there's a spectrum of violence um, happening in those interactions. And I don't know, it seems like that seems like such a simpler time, even Um, for for me, that that really strikes a chord, because I remember those marches in Austin. And we have sort of stepped through a portal where we're seeing the cycles repeating themselves. But Things have amplified in a way that feels so electric to me, like anything can catch fire at any moment, which is really wonderful with that last line, fire is born. Yeah, I think that definitely like we've seen like 
these cycles happen. Um, yeah, I referenced the Women's March in the poem, but I was actually, when I was writing it, I was thinking about um, the fight for the abortion clinics in 2013 okay. in Texas, specifically, um, because that was a summer when uh, Wendy Davis stood on the floor of the Capitol building, uh, the rotunda, and had that filibuster. And and I was there that night in the Capitol uh, when they took the vote and when, you know, there was hundreds or thousands of people in the building that drowned out the noise of that vote. And for that whole summer, I spent a lot of time at the Capitol that summer uh, with different people and different groups that were trying to keep that bill from passing. And what I noticed, it was a very, like, a racialized event because there were a lot of white people involved and you know but they were showing up in the thousands like it was some of the biggest crowds that I had ever seen right but that was also the summer that George Zimmerman was tried for the murder of Trayvon Martin and I remember you know watching people show up and show up for these women's marches and like then when George Zimmerman was acquitted I remember that day and I remember going to like a vigil at mm-hmm. the Capitol and there was less than a hundred people there. Um, and I actually think that was kind of for me, that was a moment where I had to like step back from uh, going to like these kinds of events. Cause I was just so furious, you know, and uh, for me, I was like, you have all of these people showing up for this, but you, mm-hmm. you aren't outraged. No by the murder of Trayvon. Um, so again, like it, it was a pattern to see the same thing happen years later when Trump was elected and then everyone's like outraged and they're marching. But, you know, where were they uh, for Baltimore, for Ferguson, you know, for all of these other times? Why weren't people showing up? And also, you know, a lot of like non-white people, you know? Um, and I think that that, for me was something that I had in my mind. Black people have been fighting for so long and we just, now black people have not been showing up. Um, and I think that's something that has, for some reason, it's changed in 2020. Um, you are starting to see some non-black people show up finally. I do think though that, you know, again, like going back to patterns, I think that this, what, we, what we've seen in the past few months, um, since the murders of uh, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, I think that we can look at like other movements that started. This is like the point where they like intersect. We had the Occupy Wall Street movement, and then you had the the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, You had these women's marches. And now I think there's some like intersection. You know, there's a conversation happening um, that is suddenly like bringing these different ideas together um and you know it's because of our government it's because of capitalism it's because we're witnessing the collapse of like these systems um and how deeply embedded oppression is you know given that factor of having a virus and having people suffering economically people have time now people have time to be out in the street you know and they realize like how fucked up the system is I also just want to speak for myself um, when it comes to why I've had a hard time being as vocal as I, I believe I should have been in the past. Um, and part of that is just feeling, you know, you're surviving. So many of us are just surviving, trying to process what is happening to us. There's been this feeling where you're lacking not only time, but also the resources to educate yourself and to be able to speak eloquently. And, you know, part of that ability to now be educated is directly stemming from now we have internet access and Wi-Fi and smartphones. Um, We've got podcasts and audiobooks and um, unlimited resources. I feel like this summer and in this time, there also has been like encouragement to to be vocal and that being okay to make a mistake and to mm-hmm. understanding that um that being corrected comes from a place of love and knowing that we can now stand up for for what we believe are injustices and even if we're not as eloquent or grammatically correct or 
don't have the language that a lot of our leaders who have dedicated their lives to this, these causes um, have, there's definitely an encouragement of spreading correct information. And um, there is that pressure, but I definitely personally feel like I can step into a space that I didn't originally feel welcomed in because I felt ignorant or, I mean, even just something as simple as the book list that Monica made for us, those are starting points for me on um, being more educated about, you know, anti-capitalism and the Black Lives Matter and the feminist movements. But um, I did remember a couple of weeks ago, Monica posted a meme that was just like, just because um, people aren't using big language to talk about anti-capitalism doesn't mean that people in your neighborhood don't understand or feel or talk about these issues. Yeah. And to me, that was really comforting because it's like, I do talk with my mom and there's like a language barrier between us already. So it's already hard for me to grasp some of those conversations. This has been a constant. My mom has worked in factories her whole life. um, And there's always been this like lingering, like anti-capitalist, uplift each other, support each other, family and community first in everything in my household. And then how it intersects, it's like, if you truly believe in human rights, you believe in, in animal rights, and you believe in making food available, good food available to all people, and you believe in um, quality things instead of mass producing, um, it comes all the way down to like the stitching in our clothing and what we yeah. body. Intersectionality, that's what it is. I also feel like a lot of those barriers are being broken down where it's just like, well, no, I believe in feminism. And that means I also believe in Black Lives Matter because feminism left Black women behind in, back in the day. And, and it left people with socioeconomic difficulty. It left people in poverty behind as well. And so it's like about how we are weaving all of these causes together in a way and one is not mutually exclusive from another. Um, to me, that seems really important. For me, having worked with workers in Mexico, um, global solidarity is something that I really like believe in. And um, so I have read um, a lot of the writings and teachings of the Zapatistas in Mexico. And they have a saying, which is that you're only as fast as the slowest person you know, in your line. And so I try to keep that in my mind. Um, there are people that haven't read what I've read or they, you know, haven't had the same experiences, but they can like, they can be a part of something, you know, um, that these movements can't move forward unless you have patience, you know, and care and give people the opportunity to like teach themselves and, you know, to be there for you too. Yeah. It comes down to capitalism too, because if you think about it, if we were all growing our own food and living with our extended families like we used to um, and taking care of each other in that way, then that idiom would be true for all of us, that we're only as fast as our slowest or we're only as strong as our weakest member of our group. Um, that seems to me like a really primal, just like human tenet that should still be true. And the only reason we allow it to not be true is because of the weird, messed up capitalist society we live in. Even like to think about um, the way that we run host and how when you started, Claire, I was just like, oh, you're going to learn how to do everything. There's not one thing that one of us should not be able to have access to or know how to do or have the opportunity to learn because we're equal. Yeah. You know, I hate to drag death into this. I know it's both of your favorite subjects, but you also think about um, like responsibility. And especially right now we're learning if I cannot go and get my coffee every morning down the street, where will my coffee come from? Some of us aren't used to thinking about what if this resource were to suddenly disappear this resource that I believe that I need. Some of us expect like Amazon to ship everything straight to our door 
And as soon as we had COVID delays, like the world began to just completely feel like it was falling apart. But that's what happens when we outsource yeah. our resources. I think that that's one thing I find uh, really useful from the internet is that learning about where the things you are buying come from. Because um, it doesn't come from the store that you buy at, you know. Um, it it comes from different places. It comes through different hands. That was one thing I really learned working with people who do workers' rights, uh, especially like thinking about garment factories and I mean, even coffee production, you know, farm labor, who is out there? Where are these farms at? You know, what are they getting paid? How does it get into your kitchen or into your closet? And I think those are important questions to ask, you know, especially thinking about anti-capitalism because capitalism tries to take humanity out of the equation. And I want to know where my, the things that I'm paying for, I want to know where they're coming from. I want to know like who's profiting off of this because it's usually not the people that are making them or, you know, picking, picking the strawberries or, you know, picking your coffee. Like they're rarely the people making the profit. Monica, your book lists, I know you took so much pleasure in making those for the host blog, um, but they're just like an essential resource. And it's so hard to trust people's book suggestions sometimes. Um, it's so hard to know where to get started if you're interested in a certain movement. You know, without a mentor, without an academic library as a resource, you know, your work is of this time. And we need to connect with voices and writers that have led you and shaped you um, because your work is so important. And so I'm really grateful for that book list. And yeah, just reading one book, there's like a confidence where it's like, I can read <laughs> another book about, um, you know, this cause or this writer, or even just a, these poems to help me understand the world better because it's so yeah. easy to just get discouraged and kind of confused. To your point about not knowing where to start, Anar, I think that's um, something I've struggled with. There is no right place to start, and there is absolutely no sense in feeling guilty for not having read something. I think that we need to release that and to just pick something up, like get that recommendation, pick it up, start, and that is never going to be something that you regret, and it is never going to be something that does not edify you and make you a better fucking person. So yes, thank you for those, Monica. Really good to get like solid, solid recommendations with no, no judgment. And it's just, it just feels really heartfelt and a genuine, a genuine hand held out to just like help the rest of us take a step forward, you know? I'm just really grateful that you're so real and you're like, you want a better world and you're actively putting yourself out there to help. Yeah, I mean, you know, to hold that information if I have it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me. You know, I I benefited a lot from people who were willing to like offer me reading lists, who offered me information so that I could also like disseminate it, you know, and and I think for me coming from like a rural area it's really important for me to like think about accessibility. You know, like growing up I didn't have a lot of access to a lot of these texts, but through the years and through different people, you know, just different avenues, I would come across different things. And one thing that I would do, and I still do it, is if I'm reading a book and they mention someone, I usually like will take note of that to look that mm -hmm. person up. And that's a lot of times how I find other writers and other books is just reading, like, for example, the title of the book, Autobiography of the Semi-Romantic Anarchist is a line from a Charles Simic poem. Um, and when I read it, I was like obsessed. I'm still obsessed with that line. It's one of my favorite lines of poetry ever. But I wanted to know where it came from, you know? And I like obsessively searched until I found out that uh, Simic took that line from Herbert Marquise, who was, a, a, I think he was a German Marxist, who was actually Angela Davis's teacher. So... That's why I'm really grateful for the internet because, you know, I don't know how else I would have found that. But, um, you know, just like having information and being able to share it is, I think it's really important. You can't hoard information the way that people hoard resources. So what have you been working on 
uh, poetry wise when you've uh, been cooped up in quarantine, staying with your folks? Um, I've been doing a couple of things. I've gotten really into uh, doing book reviews and something I really enjoy doing. I just had one, I guess like a month ago, I reviewed Postcolonial Love Poems by Natalie Diaz um, by this really great literary journal called Scallywag. They do Southern politics and literature. They're fantastic. So I did that. Um, I'm working hopefully on some for the fall, uh, some more book reviews. Criticism is something I really enjoy. And I think that, you know, there has to be fairness and nuance to it. Because a lot of book reviews I read and they're just like these glowing book reviews. And sometimes I read something and I'm like, this is not great. Yeah, so I'm working on a couple of book reviews. Um, and then I've also just been working a lot on my, hopefully my second manuscript, my full manuscript, um, which tentatively is titled Birds at a Funeral. <laughs> That's um, great. Yeah, someone asked me the other day if I would use the poems from autobiography in a book. And I don't think so. Like when I finished that book, I was finished with it. So the poems that are in this in this manuscript are a lot they're a lot different than both of my previous books. They have a very different tone, a very different focus. And so I've been working on that and I want to try to have that done by the end of the year so I can start uh, sending it out. That is awesome news. Can't wait to read those poems. Yeah, I actually I can read one if you want. I was just about to ask you to please read us one. <laughs> All right. So I um, was asked to send some to the Brooklyn Review, and I think that they're publishing these. So I'll read one from that. Uh, it doesn't have a title. Think about coffins, documents of death. By now, many have been taken. But what does it all amount to? We mistook Idrafil's horn blast for a gunshot. Yet look quick. How the plumerias sweep over the west. It's beautiful. Wow. Yeah, so these are definitely like a lot shorter. Mm -hmm. um, I love how the plumerias come in at the end to sort of close the poem out. It feels very zen to me. Um, like it's washing over the sort of violent moment of mistaking that sound for a gunshot where the plumeria is just sort of like they quiet everything down. It uh, it almost feels like there's a resonance between that poem and like a Chinese, an ancient Chinese nature poem. Yeah, definitely. Um, I have been reading a lot of like uh, Japanese tanko, which I um, I love Japanese poetry um, and Chinese yeah. poetry as well. Um, I'm really interested in the way that um, they also relate to nature and to land. And I think that this book is definitely more focused on our relationship to, to land. Yeah, your poem, what reminds me of, of like um, a classic haiku would be sort of presenting a human element and a nature element that seem somewhat unrelated next to each other in a very short space. Um, which of course then the, the sort of echo between them starts to just bounce back and forth and you understand all of these different ways that they are connected. But on first read, it feels like two very different images just sort of being juxtaposed. Yeah, and I like that as, as a kind of meditation on our connection to nature or our place in it rather um, without sort of editorializing or explaining. It just allows those kind of echoes to go back and forth and the mental associations to take place organically. I, I like looking at an R and seeing like the face. <laughs> Part of my just pleasure in being alive is just listening to the two of you talk about poetry. <laughs> I'm like getting teared up. I'm so emotional because it's just so beautiful. And so... I really enjoy just observing those Aww. at home cannot Aww. see, but there's a photo of me and Monica and Claire and the two of them are talking and their gestures are <laughs> like their hand gestures are wide. Um, and then it's me with my fists under my chin, just <laughs> watching and I'm just letting it happen to me. Um, you are like a little cherub. 
Yeah. Yeah. Watching us play in the field. Yeah. And you're like a little cherub jellyfish to me, like just sort of like floating through like this little divine being just like totally soaking in reality. <laughs> I love it. I, there's no other way I would ever want to be. I really enjoy just taking it all in. But yeah, I'm just so excited about this collection and your your upcoming work. Um, it's time for another collection. Hopefully, well, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to do it and put it together. I love the title, Birds at Funerals, is that right? Uh, yeah, Birds at a Funeral. Yeah, I, I know how poets feel about using birds in the title, but it really came to me when my uncle, so my uncle passed away uh, in April. Um, he, he passed away from cancer and he, you know, he'd been fighting it for a while. You know, and going to funerals uh, right now during COVID is really like difficult. Mm. Um, but it was an open funeral. We went to the cemetery and it was very open and people were just like spread out. It was not very many people at all because they limited us. Um, but I remember being there and watching, you know, because I, I stood away from, from the crowd, um, but was watching them talk over the coffin. And then all of a sudden there were two men and they had doves. and at some point they released the doves as part of the funeral service. And I know that, I guess that's a thing that happens, but I had never seen it. And I was just really moved by that gesture. And then also just like, I spend a lot of time at the cemetery near my house um, where my grandmother's buried and there's always crows, you know? And so just something about that image of this witness that there's always a witness to these, to these burials and, even if it's not people, it's usually like the birds or the wind or, you know, some other being that's there. Um, so I, I, that's kind of like where it came from. Um, and then also like was drawn a little bit from, there's a story in the Quran that a, a friend had told me and that I also had read about um, that the crows teach uh in, in the Quran, they're named differently, but uh, the story of Cain and Abel is also in the Quran. And they, the crows teach uh, Cain how to bury Abel in the story. Because it's, I think it's the first burial because it's the first murder. Yeah. So just like thinking about those things and kind of the ways that we like bear witness to death and passing and how we bury or don't bury people in this country. So is there a bird that when you see out in the world, you're like, that's me. That's my bird. Um, I mean, definitely the crow. I've been fascinated with them since I was little, even though they have a bad reputation. I, I think they're really interesting. They're very intelligent. They remember when someone is hurt, um, their murder, you know, um, yeah. and they also cry for their dead. They mourn their dead. So I find them to be very fascinating. There's a lot here in the panhandle. Yeah. So I'm obsessed with birds. Um, uh, yes. both of you know this, but I really like to watch, um, crow <laughs> videos on YouTube. Um, <laughs> sometimes people like rehabilitate them and they like become family and mm -hmm. it's like a lifelong thing. Um, they're incredibly intelligent. Mm -hmm. Yes. You've been running a lot. Um, and you'd mentioned that you'd been running and, and being out in the landscape and out in nature. Are you like connecting more to the land do you think during these runs yeah you know I'm really lucky because uh it's a rural area and we kind of live like just at the end of uh the city limits so and there's nothing but like a um space for cattle in front of us and also behind us so there's a, a building in front of us which is the nursing home but uh, aside from that it's really just like open space a lot of agricultural type landscape for you know for corn or and cotton and things like that um so definitely like just being outside and walking and uh or running or even riding my bike everything feels amplified so the wind the sound of the wind the feeling of the wind the wind blowing the heat because it's hot here um you know the smell of the cattle yards even though they're miles away it carries over you smell that um 
any dirt that there is being picked up by the wind, you feel it, you know? And so it was just a lot of um, sensory overload in a lot of ways. Um, and then like the sky, you can see miles and miles of sky. And if there's a thunderstorm coming, you'll see the clouds just like rolling in. And I think that that's definitely giving me a new perspective um, on this land and like what what is my connection to it and I was raised here you know but this is not my land you know this land doesn't belong to me because you know all land in the U.S. is stolen you know so I think it's like also really like kind of thinking about the settler colonial project as well it's something I think about too uh, when I'm in different spaces like being here in this area what existed before Europeans came how did how did this exist? What did, I wonder what it looked like, you know. And it feels like that maybe bleeding into your work a little bit as well. I definitely like have a lot of those thoughts on my mind and thinking about uh, free land movements and giving land, returning land back to to natives, to indigenous people, you know. And that's also tied to occupied land, like in Palestine as well. It's just like thinking about those things. Do you ever? flip that table and um, approach it from you accepting that you're a product of the land? Um, I mean, yeah, in a way, I was I was born here. My dad was born, well, my dad was born in Del Rio. Um, and we are like, there are so many variables that created us, you know. Um, I was talking to my partner yesterday about this, like, who were we? Where did we come from? How did we get here? And it's something that I, especially because I have so much time, that I really started to like think about. Like, what does that mean? You know, they talk about future selves. And I think, you know, Autobiography was a book about the future. Um, mm. And I think that Muted Blood was a book about the past. And I think Birds, Birds at a Funeral, it's about the present. Because for me, that book is going to be you know, all of the witnesses that are non-human watching, essentially watching the funeral of this place um, as it's happening, because I think we are living through a time when great change is happening and is going to happen. And it could be the end of this epoch. And, you know, like I was saying about the birds, like they're just witnessing this. And they've always been here, you know, mm -hmm. they have a right to this land as well. And they are survivors. And so they will continue to witness. Because I just have a feeling they're, they're going to be around. Crows and grackles. Especially the grackles. <laughs> God. Claire, if you're a bird, what bird are you? I think I'm a cardinal. I did just start seeing so many cardinals in my environments when you started working here with us. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of cheesy because that was my high school mascot. Um, <laughs> But I also just really like cardinals, you know. What about you, Anar? What bird are you? Oh, I am a blue jay. She's um, just been waiting for us to ask her that. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, my God. You guys are so mean to me. Um, <laughs> but yes, I love the blue jay. Um, it's my guide, as cheesy as that sounds. But um, I remember I was living in Houston, and I remember a... Blue Jay was sitting on our front lawn and it hopped towards me. And ever since then, when I need comfort or to connect or to be grounded, I will hear or see a Blue Jay. But I, I feel like it's because I tried to save one. Mm -hmm. Thank you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for talking with us, Monica. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you. Yeah, thank y'all for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to see what host does. The titles we discussed with Monica in this episode are The Black Swan, The Impact of the Highly Improbable by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, The Marvelous Arithmetics of Distance by Audre Lorde, Open Veins of Latin America, and We Say No by Eduardo Galeano, the works of Alma Guillermo Prieto, 
and Postcolonial Love Poem by Natalie Diaz. We recommend shopping these titles on bookshop.org, where a portion of all sales goes to supporting small, locally owned bookstores across the nation. 